There's a story I've told of a reporter who uh, arrived at a construction site and interviewed three stonemasons at their work. All three were busy with a hammer and chisel, and they were chipping away at the rocks, knocking away. And he came to the first, and he said, what are you doing? And the man glanced up, and he said, I'm just doing my job, breaking up rocks, getting my paycheck. He turned to the second man, and he said, what are you trying to do? And the man paused for a moment, and he looked at the rock, and he said, well, I'm trying to actually square up the edge on this rock so that it will fit in properly with these other two rocks. And then the reporter went to the third man. He said, what are you doing? And the man stood up and then he gazed over the entire site. And then with a sweep of his arm, he answered by saying, I am building a great cathedral. (laughs) Three people, each of them were doing the same thing. But each one of them had a completely different attitude about what they were doing, an understanding of what they were doing. The first was just passing time. He was breaking rock. The second, he was being diligent to his task, and he was being faithful to his mission. But it was the third, who was inspired by a dream and was actually filled with a vision that went beyond the mission. Which one, now, in hearing that story, do you think, found greater joy in their labor? Which one do you think was the most fulfilled in what they were doing? And out of that, which one do you think gave it their very best from day to day and week to week and month to month through the entire project? And then ask yourself the question, which one would you like to be? Three of them were at work, but only one of them really had a vision. Now, a lot of attention has been given to vision in in recent years. People talk about having and pursuing a dream for their lives. There are institutions that have developed seminars on vision casting in order uh, for not only individuals, but organizations to find their purposes. And, 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 and the reason why is pretty, pretty uh, obvious, because vision invests a sense of meaning to life. It, it defines core principles, and it energizes and animates life. It, it clarifies identity and And it helps you understand and define what makes you unique. And in that, it also invites passion. It's the best expression, really, of what you, as a person, and I would then expand that to be able to say you, as a congregation, were made for by God. And in it, you find his sweet spot, (laughs) where his presence lies. And and in finding your vision, uh, you find God's pleasure as you give it you're all. So we have to ask yourself the question, are you possessed, not just as an individual, but as a congregation, by a vision? Do you have a vision for your life, a clear portrait uh, for yourself uh, of the man or the woman that God has intended to make out of you, he's created you to be? Something that makes sense of your labors and, and makes you even eager to serve and to give of yourself. If so, you really know the power behind it all. And and, and even more, you can appreciate how that would have the very same effect within a congregation. In a matter of just a few weeks, you're all, y'all, I sound like an American here, we're going to be celebrating uh, the arrival of a new pastor. And from my experience, you will be entering a new season in ministry. 
Before Pastor Sears left, I sat with him when I discovered there was going to be an intermediate period of time, and I asked him, I said, what should I be talking about? Uh, You've been with the leaders, and you've been with the church. And he said, Lyle, do something on refreshing the vision. And so that's why I decided to go to this point. And and you're going to be entering a new season in ministry, and for that reason, I want to invest whatever time I have then in remaining here, looking into God's Word to, to refresh the vision that animates Ebenezer. And I do that for several reasons. For the last few years, my life and work at the seminary has not just been coaching students, but also consulting with churches, especially churches in transition. What I've discovered is that too often, congregations struggle with two things. First, expecting to be told what their vision is, and too often looking to somebody to tell them what their vision is, a a pastor or a committee. And, And then secondly, they struggle with not having a clear sense or awareness of what is their unique vision and, and how do they find it? Now, some of you are familiar with George Bullard. He's a consultant in congregational life, a, an expert, as it were, who has served as an advisor in the NAB. Uh, he's been drawn in by the leadership of the NAB. Bob Cron uh, would, would know who he is. He, he, George Bullard, has invested a lot of research into the role of vision in congregational life. And and, and, and I was really privileged to be part of a discovery team uh, that he was using to produce what came out as his top 100 vision insights for congregations. Now, I'm not going to read them all, but, but, but just take a few from the top for this morning. One of the things that we discovered was that vision is not what leaders cast and then followers catch. It is something by which leaders and followers share and by which are captivated. Another discovery we made was that the word vision contains, (laughs) not, not a brilliant discovery, but an obvious one, the word vision contains neither the letter M nor the letter E. Vision is not about me. And I would add it is not just about a pastor or even a select committee. It is about God and his unique and intended purpose for each fellowship. If there's any authorship when it comes to vision, while it first comes from God, it comes to life among God's people and the life that they share together. There's another discovery that we we had listed, that when congregations are in the best possible relationship with God and with one another, they can now easily feel their vision. This feels right for us. Now, when you read that, you notice that the be- that, that shared experience of God's people is where vision actually shows up. That's how you find it. It's out of your relationship uh, with God and then how you share that with others that a leader and a pastor and a committee may be able to articulate the vision, but the congregation is able to live the vision. And it's you and You and you and you and only all of you together in relationship with God, each and every one together who are able to live it and feel it and experience it. And that, by the way, was another one of the discoveries that we made. Vision is not so much written as it is experienced. Vision must be sensed and experienced rather than read or heard. So while congregations do make a mistake of expecting to be given a vision, they also suffer in that they cannot seem to 
find their senses and then share their experience and articulate what it means to pursue God's unique purpose together. And in the absence of that shared vision, life as a fellowship then just becomes a matter of breaking rocks, marking time, going through motions day after day without a sense of purpose. There's no meaning, there's no mission, and there's no joy. It's no wonder then that we would read in the Bible that where there is no vision, the people perish. We read that in Proverbs Proverbs 29, verse 18, without a sense of purpose that is unique and and personal, that has your name upon it, Ebenezer Baptist Church, written all over it. Well, the Bible says without a vision, people perish. That's that's how it appears, really, in the King James Version. But before it sounds like a death threat, hear how it's translated elsewhere. In both the English Standard Version and the NIV, it reads this way. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. That's how you may have translated in your Bible. Now, I like that translation because instead of saying something final like the people perish, you know, there's some finality to that whole thing. With the idea of there not being any restraint, there's actually some hope. The term casting off restraint that you find there is the Old Testament way of describing wandering. You'll find that like the people wandering in the, in the desert, they, they were casting off constraint. And, and when people cast off restraint, it is as if they've lost their guidance system. Their steering wheels come off and, 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 and they've lost their sense of direction. And what they need is to get their bearings back and they need to sharpen their focus and they need to find their balance and get back on point. According to that verse, the critical agent for focus and balance is vision, or as some of you then also have it translated in your Bibles, revelation, which is a vision that is defined by God. Now that very same word is also found in the book of Hosea by the prophet, Hosea chapter 12, verse 10, where God himself says, I have spoken to you by the prophets and revealed, notice this, multiple visions I have given you symbols through the witness of the prophets so that you might understand how it is that you are mine. Now the word there is the word shazon in Hebrew, and and, and it it describes a portrait, a picture, an illustration, and one that is uniquely painted by God. And it reveals the essence and future that he has intended for his people in a very unique sort of way. Back to back to, to 2918. Focus on that unique portrait, align yourself with his purposes, and then look at the second part of that verse. It says, happy are you. And then not only discovering that vision, but in keeping it, keeping to it, keeping the law. There is something solid and gracious in all of this. And if anything, it is a constant reminder that God really does love you and really does have a wonderful plan for you and for your fellowship as well, and for Ebenezer. Which then may raise a question as you're thinking about it, what is that plan? And that's a good question. But to answer it, a distinction needs to be made between mission and vision. Those are two different terms. All of God's children and all of God's churches throughout the world and throughout time have been led by a common sense of eternal mission, mission. And we all find it really listed in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus 
issues a command, a great commission, something that relates to all congregations everywhere. All authority, he says, has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And then he goes on to say, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's mission. That's the commission. And it's something that belongs to every fellowship on the planet. And it describes what we are supposed to do. That's the key. Mission tells us what we do. Not too long ago, the NAB uh, recommended a resource to help churches get focused, and I'm sure some of you may remember it. Back in the 90s and the early 200s, it became a, a, a common slogan that defined almost every NAB church I came to, that our mission is to win, build, equip, and send. How many of you remember that? Yeah, you remember that? It came out of the... Uh, out, out of, uh, the idea of focusing. And that's certainly what we are all supposed to do. Every church is supposed to do. But, but, but that's what we all, and by all, uh, are, are not, not only to do, but then in doing, we become something a little bit different. And that's where vision comes in. Vision says is different. It, mission is what we do. Vision is what we become, what we are what we are like. And by we, I mean a specific congregation, a local congregation. What you look like when, as a result of being obedient in doing the mission. It's, it, it, it is there where each church discovers that, in fact, it has a unique portrait. That it has, in fact, its own unique genetic identity. As it were, you might call it a distinctive vision that describes the undeniable feel that that fellowship has, that is special and is irreplaceable. So, Ebenezer, do you realize that you have a unique identity, a unique DNA pattern? Because you do. If you were to go to the New Testament, you will find that there are any number of pictures used to describe the church. And if you were to go to the New Testament, you might find the right portrait that would fit the church. That would be something almost like going into the book of Hosea out of the multiple visions and symbols to be found. One New Testament scholar, Paul Manier, sought to catalog all of the New Testament word pictures, images that were used to describe the church in the New Testament. By his count, he had over 100, but 98 in particular in all. Now, I've listed a few on your outline, on your sermon outline. Uh, He included the vine and the branches. He included the citizens of a holy nation. He he included members of God's household, a member of God's family. Um, uh, There's any number of pictures that are there. Uh, God's army, uh, God's people, all these things. Now, each one of those names has a unique feel to it. And while I'm sure that every church has the potential within them as part of the general genome that we have as Christians, the fact is every church might find themselves closely aligned with maybe one or two of those special pictures so that when they look through that album of pictures, the the church, they say, that's our picture. That's what we look like. That's what we feel like when we gather together. When you look at that one, you think to yourself... I am so self-aware that I'm looking at that and I'm, I'm finding myself in that picture. 
Uh, let me give an example of how that works. Uh, uh, from one of my very best students at Wheaton College, his name was Wayne Gordon. When he, he graduated, he and his young bride uh, deliberately moved into a very tough, gang-filled neighborhood in Chicago to plant a church. The streets were pretty much defined by the presence of gangs, gangs that were very disciplined and, and tight in, in, in their understanding. And, and I really worried about them, and I prayed about them, and I was thrilled then uh, to visit them about two years into their mission of church planning, and I found that he had already developed a core to the congregation, and his le- leadership was really a bunch of converted gang members. <laughs> How did that happen, I asked him. He said, well... Uh, As Wayne had gotten to know them, he discovered that for them and for their fellowship to take off, it would have to carry a gang-like feel to it. I love that phrase that he used. They needed to fit their feel. And he knew that the vision for their church wasn't going to be something very gentle or domestic in that album, something like a flock of sheep, uh, you know, that wouldn't fit, uh, or a vineyard, something organic. Instead, he discovered that they were going to be more like an army, That was part of the imagination of the community. And as he explained it, it made sense because as I spent time together with him and his congregation, I actually felt like I had enlisted in God's army. The way they they, they related with one another and they conducted themselves. Uh, They they had a sense of discipline and they had a sense of obedience. And even the way they talked about Jesus as Lord was was something uh, firm and militant as it were. And as I witnessed their church life, I could actually see their vision coming alive. Uh, They required Bible study uh, uh, of anybody who would come into their church. And the Bible study, as I sat with it, actually felt like I was going through basic training again. You know, just the way they conducted it. They even had colors. I mean, you know, gangs are known for colors. They had T-shirts that that identified them as they walked through the community. Uh, You know, Wayne had actually created his own gang that took over that community uh, because that was the vision of his congregation. And I'm pretty sure that's a unique vision that came out of their particular mission, but I'm also pretty sure that wouldn't serve as a vision for a lot of other congregations. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't serve as a vision for Ebenezer. I can't picture you all as a bunch of members of the, of the hood in Vancouver. But it's, it's certainly the vision that God had in mind for them, and as they lived in that, and they aligned themselves to it, and they built toward that, They discovered God at work among them. And I have to believe that God has a similar and unique purpose in mind right here at Ebenezer as well. What is it? Well, that's not so much for me to say as it is for you to feel and discover in the process of your experience and especially to prepare yourself for now as you experience that together with a new pastor coming up. What I do know is this, that God has given you all the tools and encouragement you need for this journey of discovery. Among the passages that illustrate the portrait of the church in the New Testament, there is one that I really love and I'd like to share with you in the remaining weeks that we'll have together. You heard it read this morning out of Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there with you because I'm going to just focus really on one particular verse. It's it's unique that in writing this particular passage, Paul actually 
paints at least three different portraits or visions of the church. So three of these images appear just within a matter of one or two or three verses. And I have to believe that in looking at those, you might find something that comes very close to the feel of Ebenezer. Uh, Look at verse 19. There you'll see uh, that the church is composed of fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. That's one of the pictures. We'll look at that closely. Here's another one. The members of God's household, his family, there in verse 19. That's another we'll look at closely. There's a third that appears a little bit later, verse 21, a picture of the holy temple that is built upon Christ the cornerstone as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It is going to be well worth our time to invest careful attention to these pictures in order to have an impact in order to be able to discover what, it, what expresses God's intentions for a congregation. But while we will look at them all in a few weeks, I want to underline what is probably the most important feature in verse 19, the most important word that opens the door to this journey of discovery. And if you take anything away from it this morning, I want you to know what that word means. Look very closely at verse 19, and there you will find that there is one word that matters most. Without it, everything falls apart. It's the very first word of that verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people. And you are members of God's household. Consequently, I love that word. It is one of those words you find in the Bible that turns the corner on truth. Everything that follows that word is the consequence of the truth that has just been revealed before. Consequently. We can't read on in the verse and find anything of value without first referring back to what has led up to that word consequently. What was the truth that we are now living with in consequence? Well, the truth is, go back to verse 13. But now, but now, Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. I'm sure many of you are familiar with what we find in the, in the first verses of Psalm 127. There we read, unless the Lord builds a house, they who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman who keeps awake, keeps awake in vain. But add to that then the discovery of a vision. Unless the Lord builds the vision. Unless the Lord gives birth to his body, they who labor, labor in vain. Let's get real. It is the Lord who is the one who creates the consequence of our vision. No one is ever clever enough to create themselves. No one is ever competent enough to be able to invent their own identity. We can try real hard. We might even be able to experience some measurement of success. But there is only one person who possesses the perfect qualities to be the designer and the creator, not just of your life, but of this fellowship, and that is Jesus Christ, your Lord. Look at verse 19. It is through him that that we both, all of us, have access in one spirit to the Father. On a theological level, I'm sorry, verse... 
18. On a theological level, this verse is so profound. It has all of the elements of the Trinity right there. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. The word Trinity may not appear in the Bible, but, but, but all three of those characters do show up, and they show up in this one verse. And on a practical level, we find all the building blocks right there with the three of them at work for our lives as a church right here as well. It's a humbling thing to think that in that one verse, we are included. We find our place in the fellowship of the Trinity. It is through him, Jesus Christ, that we have access to the Spirit and to the Father as well. Which is why the very next word, beginning in verse 19, is so consequential. Consequently. You see, whatever journey any congregation will ever take in search of its vision, to refresh it or to find it, in search of purpose and identity and meaning, it all must begin with Jesus Christ. And whatever discoveries that are being made are made only as a result of what comes from walking closely with him, and determining to see life and your fellowship through his eyes. Essentially, what this means is that you find your vision by keeping Jesus Christ between yourself and everyone else around. Now, some of you may wonder, what does it mean to put Jesus between us and everyone around? Well, let me close with an illustration. There is a wonderful family movie that we that we've had at home for years. With It's called The Buttercream Gang. Does anybody? Has anybody? <laughs> That's one of the very first uh, movies that uh, Kevin Costner was in, by the way. Uh, the Buttercream Gang. In it, in it, a family has moved to a new home, and, and the son in the family uh, finds himself as a stranger in this new community, struggling to form a, a forge a relationship with friends who are so different and so difficult. And in a moment of frustration, he turns to his father in a quiet moment for advice. How do I, how do I, how do I find community here? And his, and his dad, who is a veteran soldier, looks at him and says, You know, I don't talk too much about the war I was in, but I knew a soldier in my platoon who always introduced himself by saying, Hi, I'm Scott Polson. I'm a Christian. Needless to say, we made his life miserable because of what he believed. But he never got angry with us. In fact, he was always the first one to help anyone and everyone. I tried to get him to talk about it one night, but all he would say is, and notice this, Tom, the way you treat people is between you and your God, but the way I treat you is between me and mine. Let me just repeat that. The way you treat people is between you and your God, but the way I treat you is between me and mine. He goes on to say, well, a couple nights later, Scott Paulson was killed. We were out on a night patrol. We got ambushed. The point man went down. Of course, Scott Paulson, the man that he was, volunteered to go get him. The ironic thing about the whole situation was that he died saving a soldier who absolutely hated him. I just couldn't understand why he would do it. Well, the war ended and life went on, and I forgot all about him until the night in which we were born. And the, and the first time I held you in my arms, I realized that I would give my life to protect you. And at that moment, I remembered 
Private Scott Paulson and how his God determined how he would treat others. And I figured out that was how I was going to treat you. And I finally understood why he did what he did. And to tell you the truth, it changed my life. What a great turn of phrase. The way you treat people is between you and your God. But the way I treat you is between me and mine. That's what it means by putting Jesus between us. And when we do that, we we discover just what he expects to do with us, between us, among us. And once we discover that, it'll change lives as well. And that's about all I would really ask of you this morning. Not, Not for grand visions or magnificent dreams, but to begin with a simple decision that would lead into the future. Something that you could be able to share with a new pastor. The determination to put Jesus Christ between you and you and you and you and all of you and all of us. Do that, and in the end, you will find your sweet spot and a love deeper than any brother, deeper than any sister. You will find a fellowship that is filled with the fullness of heaven. It's a simple decision, but it's the first step of your journey. Would you pray together with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to see each other through your eyes. Take your stand in our midst. This would we pray in our worship. But Lord, I pray that you might be able to focus our vision only in and through yourself. That we might see each other exactly how you see us. That we might love each other, Lord, with a love that does not come from a human heart, but is something that reflects the love of God. And by this shall all men know that we are your disciples, that we do have that love for one another. So renew and rekindle that vision within us and within this church Establish, Lord, a platform in this place that will simply give more and greater glory to you in the future. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.